Uh, welcome to the January 2020 edition of the Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club podcast. Uh, this is Dr. Raphael Vega, your host. Today we'll be discussing the paper, Surgical Outcomes in Post-Traumatic Epilepsy, a Single Institution Experience. Uh, we have Dr. Hitty as the first author from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, as well, we have guest faculty, Dr. Aliente from the University of Toronto and our CNS resident fellow, uh, Dr. Jan from the University of Toronto, who will be discussing the paper and asking questions. I would like to first ask Dr. Hitty to start uh, with a summary of the paper. Thanks for the introduction. Um, basically, we wanted to study the outcomes uh, after surgical resection and surgical treatment of epilepsy in a specific population of patients that aren't routinely studied, that namely the patients that have post-traumatic epilepsy. Those are patients that develop epilepsy after a, a traumatic injury. And, you know, what we found, was, interestingly, was that these patients fared pretty well after surgical treatment. They, after surgical resection, they fared very well, very similar to patients who did not have traumatic epilepsy. And in terms of patients who weren't able to be treated with resection, uh, patients were treated with either VNS, vagal nerve stimulation, or RNS. And those patients didn't fare as well as our resection candidates, but which is similar to the, to the results seen in patients without traumatic epilepsy. Um, but this is an area of further study. Okay. Uh, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit more about the patients and uh, some of the criteria for the study? Yeah, absolutely. So what we did was we took 12 years of, uh, we had a prospective database of all of our epilepsy patients, and we looked at the patients that underwent surgery, and uh, that was one of the inclusion criteria. And we also looked at patients that had either a mild, moderate, or severe uh, traumatic brain injury um, documented in the chart. And those patients also had to have uh, follow-up and had to be treated with some surgical modality. So of all of our patients in our prospective database, uh, 23 met our inclusion criteria. The majority of those patients had mesial temporal sclerosis. Uh, a, sm a smaller subset had lesional neocortical epilepsy. And uh, even smaller subset than that had non-lesional epilepsy. Okay. And uh, what about some of the outcomes and the surgeries and how did that fare well? you know, in the study? Yeah, so they were treated with a variety of different modalities depending on what type of epilepsy they had. They were all post-traumatic cases. However, some had mesial temporal sclerosis that was observed on MRI, and those were the lesional cases, uh, temporal lobe, uh, cases with mesial temporal lobe sclerosis. And those patients were treated with traditional anterior temporal lobectomies, and those patients fared very well. So the percent of patients achieving an angle one um, were uh, above 60%, so very, you know, very, very good uh, outcomes with resection. Um, those patients who weren't able to be treated with resection were patients that either had a failed WADA test or had bilateral um, uh, temporal lobe uh, epilepsy or patients who refused phase two testing, uh, patients who didn't have lesional epilepsy. And those patients were treated with either VNS or RNS. The patients treated mm -hmm. with VNS uh, demonstrated about a 30% uh, re reduction in their seizure frequency, and the patients treated with RNS, unfortunately, did not achieve as great of a seizure reduction 
uh, and they only achieved 9.6% um, seizure reduction. So um, our algorithm was if you were a candidate for resection, you'd be offered resection. If you weren't a candidate for resection, you'd be offered VNS. Since the study was included patients from uh, 10 years ago, essentially, when RNS wasn't available, we had, they were offered VNS initially. Um, in patients who didn't achieve a greater than 50% reduction in their seizure frequency, when RNS became available, we offered them RNS. Well, well, thank you so much for that nice summary, uh, Dr. He. Um, I would like to now ask Dr. Valiente to see if there's some uh, additional questions for the author at this time. Patrick, thank you so much, and uh, thanks for having me the opportunity to discuss this paper with you. I had some sort of minor questions and maybe some more uh, in-depth ones. So I guess my first uh, question is really around the patient cohort that you used, and mm -hmm. Uh, were you able to, in fact, uh, know whether or not their epilepsy preceded their traumatic head injury and or, uh, or how did you conclude that their epilepsy, uh, their tra trauma was their primary cause of their epilepsy? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So um, this was done with um, chart reviews, but we were able to determine from the chart uh, and from our clinicians that the epilepsy was after the trauma. In, in all of the cases. In very few of the cases, the patients had, in two of the cases out of 23, um, they had documented uh, febrile seizures, but in those two cases, they didn't develop epilepsy after the febrile seizure, they developed epilepsy after the traumatic event, and so we felt that it was appropriate to call them uh, post-traumatic patients. And what is the purported or understood causal linkage between trauma and mesial temporal lobe sclerosis? Because we often think of MTS as being sort of this enigmatic um, entity, uh, which we largely don't understand how, how it arises. Yeah, um, that's, you know, a very interesting area of uh, active research. You know, I, I think the best way of looking at it is, you know, when, the, when there's an initial insult uh, to the brain and, you know, hyperactivity can result from that, uh, from that disorganized activity, um, and that initial traumatic event results in, you know, that creation of these circuits via kindling. And I think that the hippocampus has been demonstrated, and the mesial temporal lobe in general has been demonstrated to be very eleptogenic. It's just very prone to generating seizure activity. And so um, a traumatic injury can incite that. And then and it, after the inciting event, it becomes like a recurrent loop in which seizures beget seizures. And then after, you know, that happens, then the temporal lobe becomes sclerotic and you know, again, it's this positive feedback where, you know, then it becomes on autopilot even though the trauma has already passed, that traumatic event is already done, you know, the, the seizure activity continues. So are you suggesting that it's a direct injury to the hippocampus primarily or to other parts of the, the network that ultimately then kindle the hippocampus? Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, of course, I don't, I don't think we know um, for sure. And definitely, you know, in our, in our, in our patient population, we, we wouldn't know um, given the limitations of the data we have. Um, but I think even, in, even if you had perfect uh, data, you, it'd be really hard to ascertain whether or not it was due to a, a network phenomenon or direct hippocampal injury itself. Um, and it, it also depends on the mechanism, you know, whether or not the temporal lobe was injured directly. Um, so, does your does the pathology help you at all in this? So, in the patients who had MTS, did, uh, did, did your did the patients have other lesions? So, the in terms of the pathology, um, I don't think it would really help because most times these patients are getting 
uh, surgery much later, much uh, in the remote distance after their traumatic event. So the remote, the, the distant future after their traumatic event. So you know, there's been a lot of time for there to establish the temporal lobe sclerosis um, from the injury time to the uh, to the actual time of surgery. So I think those, you know, in the vast majority of patients, we saw temporal lobe sclerosis, but given that we saw that on the pathology doesn't mean, you know, I don't think we can de determine from that sample what begot what. Hmm. I guess in that context then about the imaging, so and about the table one, I guess, uh, which is the characteristics where you've kind of combined the moderate and severe, yeah. um, where, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the moderate patients don't have an imaging abnormality and the severe patients do have, would have an imaging abnormality. Is that fair to say? Close. The um, it, the mild, moderate, severe breakdown was um, done as in uh, Anagers uh, and Cohen. And basically, the, the, it wasn't just based on imaging characteristics. The mild injuries were those that didn't have a loss of consciousness or a skull fracture uh, less than 30 minutes. The ones with moderate were uh, patients with skull fractures or a loss of consciousness 30 minutes to 24 hours. And then those with severe were loss of consciousness uh, greater than 24 hours or an imaging abnormality like a contusion or a hematoma. So, so basically, the, the moderates can have some imaging uh, abnormality, namely a skull fracture. Okay, but oh, and, okay. So then, uh, from your table one, what percentage of these patients actually had sort of imaging confirmation that they had a, a cortical injury? Yeah, I got. Out of all those patients, only two of them had to go sur undergo surgery for hematoma evacuation, but the majority of them actually didn't have uh, a hematoma that required surgery. Hematoma or contusion, I'm talking about like or any kind of intracranial. So, so how right. many patients had an abnormal imaging that revealed some type of cortical injury? I don't have that information on, okay. on hand right now. <laughs> I'm just trying but to get that would to have been point. good to look at. Yeah, that, yeah, no, that absolutely would have been good to look at. Yeah, because I think you're trying to postulate sort of this secondary or dual pathology type of thing, right? That maybe I'm maybe I'm putting words in your mouth in regards to the hippocampal kindling, which would be that you had some cortical area that becomes uh, autonomous in activity and kindles, or you develop a sort of a dual pathology with hippocampal sclerosis. Right. Um, yeah, we didn't have all of the. Pre-op imaging is the is the other problem, because of how long ago a lot of their traumatic events were. A lot of times we just had you know the history of the trauma, and we didn't have like the the pre the, the imaging right after the trauma. So that was a limitation of the study for sure. Great, thank you very much. Maybe I'll pass it on to Han. Um, sure. I guess I'll start with a pretty generic question. What was the impetus for studying this? Why did you find an interest in the linking trauma and epilepsy um, was kind of the background story behind the study. Yeah, so we were curious whether or not these patients are different than, you know, quote-unquote, a standard epilepsy patient where a patient that doesn't have a history of trauma. So we, we wanted to know um, whether or not traumatic patients that develop patients with TBI, traumatic brain injury, develop, who develop epilepsy, we wanted to know if that population of patients was different than patients without trauma. And the reason why we thought this would be an interesting question to ask was because it's 
trauma, I think, is often thought of as a diffuse process that, you know, there's not one spot that gets injured. And so a lot of times, and so, you know, it, it would be hard to sign these people up for a resective surgery because there's no focus. But, you know, what many have people have demonstrated, and we've also demonstrated with this study, is that actually even if, if you go undergo an injury that results in diffuse injury, um, those people a lot of times end up developing a localized injury that can be treated with resective surgery with excellent outcomes. So, you know, that was the question. Is trauma, which is thought of generally as a diffuse process, is that something that's going to, are those patients going to develop a type of epilepsy that's not treatable with surgery? So, you know, I think uh, our goal was to demonstrate that that's not true, and in our hands, you know, in the, in the right patient, uh, a resection can be very valuable for patients with post-traumatic epilepsy. That makes sense, and I, I wonder always how these trauma patients are followed. I'm not sure about your institution, but often a lot of trauma patients that don't, you know, need upfront neurosurgery attention, they don't get followed by neurosurgeons. They may see neurologists if they develop seizures after, or they may be seen by their trauma surgeons for follow-up, or a lot go to a concussion clinic or something like that. I'm not sure, is it similar at your at your institution, or how do they kind of find their way back to neurosurgery, these trauma yeah. patients? Yeah, no, excellent question. That's exactly the case here as well, where, you know, if it's non-surgical, um, they get, exa that's exactly right. We actually have a special clinic for these patients who under have TBI, and the clinic is mainly neurology, um, and they actually have some advanced practitioners as well that are trained in TBI. So they don't, they don't really see us unless they have a craniotomy for a subdural evacuation, for example. They generally don't see us. So the way they kind of find their way back to us is the epilepsy people, you know, um, have this, uh, have conferences, and that, that includes, that's a team that includes neurology, neurosurgery, and so the during epilepsy conferences, patients will be, you know, brought to the conference and discussed, and, you know, they'll decide whether or not they warrant surgical evaluation. So they kind of find their way back to neurosurgery because these people develop, not all of them, of course, but a subset of these uh, patients with TBI develop epilepsy, they are attempted to be managed on medication, they become medication refractory, then they go to the comp, then they get presented at conference. And then, you know, if it's deemed appropriate, they're referred back to us. So we see them a lot later, you know, a lot of times, many, many years after their, their injury. Right. Um, can you remind us with an estimate maybe from the paper, how many, what's the average or how many years after their TBI or their head injury? do they usually become refractory to anti-seizure medications and may or may not require surgery? We didn't, we didn't report that exact uh, data, but, you know, it was in the, it's on the order of years. Uh, we didn't, we yeah. didn't quantify that, but it's on the order of years. Do, do you think there is a difference for patients who may have had moderate or severe uh, head injury versus mild and how many years they may present? or? I know we're still guessing at the cause of seizures and MTS and all that, but do you think there might be a correlation if we were to study a larger population? Right. So um, other studies have shown that really your likelihood of developing post-traumatic epilepsy is much higher if you have a severe injury. That's been well studied. You know, I thought what was interesting in our cohort was actually we had a fair number of patients who had only mild injury. About 40% of our sure. cohort was they only had mild injuries. So that, that kind of a, um, was was interesting to us that actually there are a lot of patients that even without a severe trauma can develop long-term sequelae. You know, but in terms of deciding and trying to analyze, you know, the time course of 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 things, I think. 
our sample size a little too low to look at do mild versus moderate and severe, do they have a different, uh, do they get it faster, do they get it slower, or how it develops. But, it, you know, uh, it's definitely a very interesting question to look at. Sure. Um, so, at least in my training, you know, we've been taught according to the 2016 Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines that well, patients who have uh, severe brain injury that they recommend Ilantin or Phenytoin for, you know, seven days following the trauma, looking right. at where the ICH is. Do you think this is reasonable? Do you think that this maybe what kind of research would be helpful to better structure like the duration of uh, seizure prophylaxis or what follow-up these patients should be getting? All that prior data is about prophylaxis for a week, right? Mm -hmm. And so our, our patients, post-traumatic epilepsy, we define that as people who have seizures after a week. Um, and the data doesn't, you know, uh, doesn't show that treating everybody with anti-seizure medicine is not the right way to go. Uh, that right. it doesn't seem like treating everybody is a good idea because everybody doesn't get epilepsy. It doesn't seem like it's prophylactic to, tr to just keep people on it um, longer than a week. So, you know, I, I don't think that's how we can prevent it. Those studies were done with phenytoin and not newer agents like Keppra, and so we extrapolate and everyone gets Keppra here, but, and, and you know, not phenytoin, but, you know, it, it might be interesting to look at with now that we have a medication with a much better side effect profile, it might be interesting to look at what if you treat people with, with, with Keppra for six months instead of one week? Maybe, you know, maybe it's since the medication is better tolerated, there'll be better compliance, maybe you'll lower the percentage of patients who develop post-traumatic epilepsy. That's just speculation, of course. Yeah, of course. And just a, a curious social question. I know in Canada, at least, um, Keppra is still slightly pricey, and uh, we often will decide whether we prescribe it to patients long-term, depending on whether they, not have, they have a drug plan and can afford it. Is that an issue that you've come across as well, or is it well, like, covered or affordable not in the United States? Yeah, not really, because it's once it becomes generic, for the most part, they're okay covering it. And it's, since it's generic, it's pretty it's pretty easy to get. I, and and generally, the way we we the way our algorithm is, you know, you start on Keppra, and you know, if Keppra doesn't control your seizures, you'll you'll Vimpat will be added. Vimpat, we do have, uh, you know, that has insurance issues. That is expensive, but but Keppra is not. We we. We always use that for prophylaxis. Right. Um, I guess my next question is a little bit philosophical. I mean, you're, one of the main conclusions from your paper is that uh, surgical treatment is similar, like similar, provides similar results for post-trauma epilepsy and non-trauma epilepsy patients. So why do you think it's important to identify trauma as like the etiology for epilepsy? Do you think the subset of patients, subset of epilepsy patients are different in some way or um, require different treatment, or is it just to kind of align that they're very similar to uh, regular epilepsy patients and how surgery can provide similar results? Right, that's a great point to bring up. You know, you're saying if it's the same for both part, both subgroups, why even make a distinction between them? I think the main the main goal for us was to say, hey, people who are referring to our epilepsy conference, people who are referring to neurosurgery, don't ignore the traumatic patients, because I think that some people would have the misguided view that, oh, if they're a trauma patient and then have got, and then they end up with post-traumatic epilepsy, that those patients uh, don't need to go to neurosurgery because, you know, there's not option, there aren't options for them that are good. But so what we wanted to do was say that 
we, you shouldn't necessarily be dividing the two groups into separate cohorts, but that actually you should include those, those patients, uh, you know, you should consider those patients for stage one and stage two if, if necessary evaluation. So those patients should get a full, you know, epilepsy workup uh, as opposed to, you know, just kind of writing it off as, well, they have post-traumatic epilepsy, there's probably not uh, anything we can do surgically. So the main goal wasn't to say we should split these patients up into two groups. Actually, it's to say, you know, we should consider the, these patients almost the same as patients who didn't have a history of trauma. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's a good, uh, important, uh, um, not distinction, I guess, similarity to make um, between the groups. Um, I guess overall, so my final question being, what do you think are the next steps what would you what would be your ideal like follow up studying uh, study after you've discovered that there's a similarity for post trauma epilepsy and non trauma epilepsy patients? Yeah, so um, very important point to make that you know I think we had really uh, you know we had a small cohort. Uh, it'd be better to do it. You know that, that can be said of almost every study. It'd be better to have you know higher numbers of patients. Um, the other thing that's important to note is that. With the novel therapies like RNS, VNS is not so novel anymore, but for especially for RNS, you know, we were a little bit disappointed by the low uh, seizure frequency reduction rate. But, you know, um, it's been shown that it gets better over time, that, you know, when you have improved programming, your RNS uh, efficacy goes up. So a really important area to study. I think, I think our paper showed very well that resective surgery, that works very well in these patients. But what we need more data for are the patients who cannot be treated with resective surgery, those patients who have an eloquent area in which they have seizure generation or patients who have bilateral seizure generation. Those types of patients who would be amenable to RNS treatment are patients that need to be studied more. Um, and, you know, it's not necessarily that we should divide them into post-traumatic versus non-post-traumatic, but I think that's an important distinction to think about because it's possible that maybe the traumatic patients who are non-lesional or maybe the traumatic patients for some reason aren't amenable to RNS. Maybe the RNS isn't beneficial for this subgroup of patients. Maybe they should have, um, you know, be considered for DBS of the anterior thalamic nucleus. So, you know, that is a, that is a therapy that um, the U.S. is a little bit behind on. We're just starting it now. It's, you know, it's been more popular in Europe, but, you know, maybe, uh, and again, this is unknown, maybe post-traumatic patients would be better treated with DBS than RNS. So, you know, that's an area that should be explored. Basically, neuromodulatory therapies for post-traumatic epilepsy and epilepsy in general, of course. Um, sounds good. I guess as a quick follow-up, so I, you're starting uh, ATN DBS for epilepsy. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of patients are you kind of uh, providing that treatment for? Like so, yeah, it's very new. I mean, the the issue is that it's hard, once you get to the neuromodulatory point, it's hard to pick, really, uh, right. because, because, you know, um, they both provide reduction in seizure frequency, um, you know, so it's, it's hard to determine, you know, which one to pick. I think generally, if there is a lesion, if there's you know, uh, a, fo a focus of, of seizure generation, if there's an epilogenic uh, uh, focus, you know, then I think those these patients would be candidates for RNS. So, uh, you know, if patients have a focus, a seizure focus, 
if they're bilateral hippocampal uh, uh, seizure generation, then I think those patients would be a tree with RNS. If patients don't really have a focus that we can find with phase two monitoring or, you know, uh, yeah, if there's no focus or no lesion, I think those patients uh, could be well treated with DBS instead. Thank you. Those are all my questions. Yeah, thanks. And that's a, a really good um, uh, discussion, actually, you know, and shedding a lot of light into this uh, post-traumatic epilepsy and what you've done at the at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, so we do appreciate that. And, and you know, again, uh, you know, in conclusion, I just want to thank everybody, you know, Dr. Heidi uh, Valiente and Dr. Jan, you know, for this wonderful uh, journal club and great questions and discussion on this topic. Um, so. But for all of our listeners, you know, I hope you were able to take a lot away on this, and I encourage you to click through and obtain CME uh, credit, um, as well as check out more upcoming uh, podcasts. And again, thank you to everybody for their time, and, and this will conclude the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast for January. Thank you.